bandwidth for this episode of Priority One is brought to you by Geek Nation Tours. Getting ready for the big Vegas convention? Visit geeknationtours.com to beam into Vegas Trek style. Command codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Welcome to Trek It Out with Priority One, featuring Space Command, and now your hosts. With us today are Mark Scott Zakree, Doug Drexler, David Raiklin, Catherine McEwen, and Ian McKay, the masterminds behind Space Command, a Kickstarter project that promises to fill the sci-fi series void we've all been experiencing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. here. It is a a packed Skype call, I can say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of snug. Yes. (laughs) Can you move over, please? (laughs) Who designed this starship? (laughs) On what show? (laughs) True, true. Yeah, basically, I can jump in I, with the, with the whole genesis of this thing. Uh, it's Mark Zakri, and uh, I'm the writer, producer, director of the show. And 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 Doug Drexler and I have worked on a number of the Star Trek series, and I hugely admire the job he done on Battlestar Galactica with the effects. And uh, and then my friend Neil Johnson had been directing a number of low budget, very high high effects and high production quality uh, features. And so the three of us kind of came together to do this 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 vision, Space Command. And it takes place over a long chronology. A lot of it takes place in our solar system with, with slower than light ships. And then we ultimately de- developed faster than light, light drive at the long, you know, tail end of our chronology. But, um, but Doug, Doug's been the point man on designing the ship. It's, it's the, we call it the clipper ship. The main, the main ship is, is, is the Paladin. And it's just a great design. And then we'll have, then they'll, they'll be going through several iterations over over several generations of our characters. So, uh, so Doug can definitely talk about some of the design elements of, of what he and Andy Probert have been have been working on. So there, uh, yes. <laughs> well, it is without a doubt that each of you have played a unique role in science fiction, film, and television. Why don't we go around and give each of you an opportunity to highlight the projects you've already helped shape? So let's start with you, Mr. Zakri. Uh, yes, I've uh, I've been a writer working in um, primarily television for many many years. Uh, I've written for Star Trek: The Next Generation, DS9, Babylon Five, Sliders, Friday the Thirteenth, the series, Smurfs, He-Man, Super Friends, Real Ghostbusters, tons and tons and tons of shows. Beauty and the Beast, uh, Forever Night, it just keeps going. And I also wrote the Twilight Zone Companion. So I've uh, I've done a lot over my uh, over my lengthy career. <laughs> Mr. Drexler and yourself. Yes, yeah. sir. Yes. I actually started as a makeup artist in the business. And I started, I am proud to say, with the uh, master of all makeup artists, Dick Smith. And if you don't know who Dick Smith is, you better find out. (laughs) You can't go on without knowing who he is. So Uh -uh. Google him right now and see who he is. Anyway, Dick gave me my start. I started as a makeup artist. And my make I, I was a makeup artist for about 13 years on various pictures, probably best known for Dick Tracy, which we won an Academy Award for. Yeah. Uh and a BAFTA. Uh, and a Saturn as well. Uh, but you know something? Once I'd done Dick Tracy, I was ready to do something else. And Star Trek was 
shooting just across the town. And man, you know, I've been a Star Trek fan since I was 13 years old. And that's the only place I wanted to be. And I went over there, hightailed it to Paramount and met up with Mike Westmore, who I really, you know, hit it off with. I, I love the guy dearly. He's like a member of my family. Uh, I, I, I became a makeup artist on the show and was a makeup artist on Star Trek for three years. Uh, after that, you see, the beauty of Star Trek was that the production company was, was like one big family. And if you worked in any area for any length of time, you got to know everybody else. So moving sideways, my career took me through a number of different departments on Star Trek. So I was a makeup artist. I was a scenic artist with Mike Okuda. I was a, a graphic designer, of course, with Mike. Uh, ended up as an illustrator on the show and then went to the visual effects department. So I probably can cl lay claim to having had more jobs on the show than anybody else. Uh, uh, after 17 years, maybe, on all the shows, Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, uh, Voyager, Enterprise, a whole bunch of movies, uh, the, when the show finally went down, Gary Hutzel, who'd been a visual effects supervisor on Deep Space Nine for years and Next Generation, well, he'd been trying to get me to come work with him for a while. And when Enterprise was canceled, well, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, after a 17-year run in, in this town, that's really unusual. I figured, that's it. I'm done. I'm never going to work again. And when I got home, there was a message from Gary on Battlestar Galactica saying, I heard about Enterprise. I'm really sorry. But, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. So, you know, I've been with Gary for like the last six or seven years where we did Battlestar Galactica, Blood and Chrome. We're working on Defiance right now, a new series that's going to be on sci-fi. And uh, here we are. Oh, yeah, a couple of Emmys on that uh, Battlestar Galactica. Thank you very much. Yeah, just, uh, mm -hmm. just a few, right? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, uh, yeah it's been yeah. great. Anyway, that's me. Wonderful. Uh, and you, sir, Mr. McKay. Hello. Um, well, most people... <laughs> no, most people know me for the enemy camp. I actually worked on the uh, the Star Wars prequels and the special editions for um, for about eight years. Um, and uh, I guess I guess people know me as the designer of Darth Maul and Queen Amy Doll. I've actually designed all the characters and costumes in that first film, except for Jar Jar. <laughs> okay. Although, in Jar Jar's defense, that was a that was a really fun and interesting character. That seven day design that went wrong on the sixth day. Uh, <laughs> when he started to speak up until right. then, he was a duckbill yeah. dinosaur with ears which was just so fun it was so yeah. fun to have it it was the world's first you know cg completely cg character in a, in a feature film and it was just it was a, a shame what happened but then you know that's nobody sets off to make a bad character and sometimes just the last minute they miss the the bullseye and i guess mm -hmm. that's happened there everybody uh, should just get off a of jar jar cut it out already yeah Great well you character. know it, Anyone, anyone under four feet tall really loves them. <laughs> so that would be the, chil the children and the Ewoks, I guess. But anyway, so I, I was there. Um, I was there for the three prequels and, um, and some of the special editions. I'm actually in the special edition of, of Empire Strikes Back. I am the um, stormtrooper in the front uh, row while Darth Vader's um, ship lands aboard the, the, the Death Star to me. Cool. And um, I'm the one who's walking... And limping and not listening at all to the commands of the other uh, stormtroopers because you can't hear anything inside those costumes, oh. and they hurt. Oh. Okay, they really hurt. So anyway, uh, that's my great grand Star Wars performance. Um, <laughs> after that, I I left and I, I worked on lots and lots of of other shows. Uh, Interview with the Vampire, Dracula, um, 
John Carter recently. I helped design the Hulk and the Avengers, all kinds of stuff like that. But before the Star Wars stuff, I was at Industrial Light and Magic. It started on Terminator 2. And around about that time, Star Trek 4 was coming through. And I'm an old, old Trek fan from from the day the first show aired on TV, and I was glued to my TV set watching it. And when 4 came around, it was just ah, heaven on earth and really hard to sit and storyboard hook when Star Trek was happening down the hall. So anyway, I, um, I remember them casting the whales for that show, and they accidentally cast the uh, proportions of the latex wrong and ended up with this thing that almost didn't set. And it, by God, it made it feel like real skin. So everyone was so proud of that. And those, those whales were a real, real breakthrough. And I, I sat there whining outside the window because I was not on that show. Um, fortunately, Star Trek VI came around while I was still at ILM, and I did get to work on that one. So, uh, oh, so hundreds of storyboards of Christopher Plummer with his eye patch. Yes. <laughs> so cool. Very cool. Anyway, I've, I've gone on to, to write and I'm about to um, go and direct my first feature and all sorts of other things too. But, um, you know, my heart is still... Uh, back there with this kind of science fiction and science fantasy as well, you know, and it's really fun because for me, Star Wars and Star Trek live in totally different universes. One comes from the the John Carter of of Mars science fantasy lineage and Star Trek is actually much more uh, uh, smart intellectual science fiction that I I grew grew up reading with Ray Bradbury and people like that. So I get to stand on both horses. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And last but certainly not least, Catherine McGowan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's am great I, to be here. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Please let me know if I'm, if I'm botching anybody's name. Oh, it's actually McEwen. McEwen, okay. It was close. Okay. It was, close. It was like McCaig and McEwen mixed together. And you got <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, um, well, I was actually introduced to Neil Johnson by Mark and Elaine Secree uh, a few years ago. Um, and I met Mark and Elaine through a class that they were having. And then Neil um, cast me in his film Alien Armageddon, which was actually my first foray into sci-fi. And now I'm getting to be uh, Odara Talin on Space Command, which is really exciting. She's uh, second in command and the chief medical officer. And so, yeah, despite only having been in the one sci-fi film, it's become a genre that I've really grown to love. And I'm really excited to be able to be a part of this with so many amazing sci-fi legends. Oh, how envious I am. <laughs> I am. I am. I am. I am. Adrian and I are both, uh, you know, actors. We've done, we've dabbled in. And so how envious we are. <laughs> well, I feel very blessed. It's, yes. it's a great experience. Okay. It's a great experience. Well, let's go it's ahead. True. Oh, go I was going to say, this is the luckiest job in the world to sit down and, and, you know, be paid to do the things you love. It's really, really fun. It does feel like playing most of the time. Who's getting paid? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really great fun. I mean, for all of us, I mean, we all grew up, you know, with the exception of Catherine, you know, I think we all grew up with, uh, you know, just, just, I mean, the moment I saw Star Trek, I just wanted to be on that set and be on, in that world. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I always, even now get jazzed, whether I was on, when, when, when I was on the next gen sets or the DS9 sets or the Babylon 5 sets, it's still a thrill. And uh, now that we're building spaceship sets, you know, it's just, uh, I always still feel that same, that same excitement. And uh, it's, it's, it's really a really fun uh, world to play in. It really is, and if I could just add one thing, one of the best things about sci-fi I've noticed as an actress is that 
it's a genre where you always have really strong female characters, usually in leading roles, which you don't often get. You know, you'll often play the girlfriend or the wife or, yes. you know. Whereas sci-fi, you always get, you know, these amazing, these amazing complicated uh, characters who are in really strong roles. So I think that's, you know, I think that's a great, it's a great advantage of that genre. Yeah, here, here, I guess. here. Well, let's go ahead and jump into some of these questions. Um, you touched a little bit on on the story of, of Space Command um, a little earlier. Can you can you tell us anything else? Can you, is there anything more you'd like to sure. share in terms of the story? Sure. I, the, uh, um, basically, you know, Doug and I, and and uh, Doug and I, and, um, and 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 Ian too, and number, many of our team grew up very influenced by the science fiction of the fifties. Uh, I grew up in the sixties and seventies, and uh, so Forbidden Planet and later the original Space Patrol, which I only saw as an adult, but also the the books of Heinlein and Asimov and my dear friend Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke and so many of those writers, you know, and 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 the work of Chesley Bonestell and Billy Lay and a lot of the 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 artists and scientists, they were in the 50s, they were creating a vision of where we would go in the future in space. And the whole idea was we would go out, obviously, manned exploration out to the, the, the planets in our solar system. We'd colonize Mars and explore the outer outer worlds and moons of our system and, and colonize those and mine the asteroids and then develop you know faster than light drive and go out into the stars and meet alien races. And it was a very, it was a, they were basically all writing in a shared universe. And it was a very appealing view of the future, a very hopeful view of the future. And uh, um, I found it very beguiling. And certainly, Star Trek continued that that vision uh, in the '60s and beyond. And um, and Doug and I just started talking about well, how great it would be to be to take that as a jumping off point and using what we know now, both in terms of science and and film design and all of our all the tricks we can do now. Uh, you know, do something that would be kind of inspired by that, but also not be nostalgic or tongue in cheek, but very forward looking. Because I think it's high time that we you know jump started the uh, the manned space program again. Uh, time and um, and so 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 we all started talking about the whole the whole notion of um, of doing a big 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 epic story on a big canvas. Uh, Heinlein. Robert Heinlein created something he called the future history, which was a timeline of man's exploration, the outward, the outward migration to space. And uh, so, so, so in, with, with that in mind, I kind of, kind of came up with the idea of two families, the, uh, the Kemmer family and the Sikander family, and we follow them as they are part of that outward migration and exploration. And it, so it, the story follows um, several generations, essentially a 200-year span and some of the stories are taking place further along that span, as I said earlier, where we are going out to the stars. And some of the stories are taking place earlier in the in the chronology, where we're much more uh, closer to our to our own time. And so Doug and I and and Ian and and Neil were all very much involved in the whole design phase now, where we're designing uh, spaceships and 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 spacesuits and aliens and creatures and robots and and androids and the whole nine yards. And uh, but it'll, it'll be through the viewpoint of these two families as they are sometimes in alliance with each other, sometimes in, in enmity, and different different members. And um, and the Kemmer family, I actually named got that name from Ed Kemmer, who starred in the original Space Patrol, um, an amazing man. He was a World War II hero. He flew P fifty one Mustangs. He was shot down uh, by the Germans. He escaped from a from a POW camp. And and that's why when he played Buzz Corey on Space Patrol, you really believed he was a hero because he actually was. And I was lucky enough to to meet him uh, when he was older. And have lunch with him, and he was just an astonishing man, just the, just the perfect hero, and uh, and so that's so that's my little tip of the hat by by choosing that name, and uh, I basically have written the first I've, I'm writing the first two hour film that we're going to be doing, but also and and I've outlined the other three, and um, and then Doug and I are also plotting out half hour episodes 
that will be earlier in the chronology as well. And uh, because uh, Doug and I both really are fans, huge fans, of course, of, of the half-hour drama. I mean, my God, I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, so that's not, not hard to guess. <laughs> and uh, so that's sort of that's, that's what we're doing now, and it's, it's really thrilling, really fun. Very cool. So the overall style, uh, the feel of the movie, the attitude of it, can you give a bit more about uh, how that's evolving or what you're going for? Yeah, I, basically it's... Uh, you know, I mean, with all of us, I mean, you know, uh, the goal is, you know, what makes science fiction work well? I mean, you have to have characters that you care about. I, a few years ago, I, I did a, a Star Trek episode that Doug and Ian and I uh, collaborated on, along with uh, George Takei and Christina Moses, who, who I've cast in, in Space Command as well. And uh, and it was called World Enough in Time. It was done by Star Trek New Voyages. I co-wrote and directed and executive produced it. And it was this incredible character piece where the audience is in, in tears at the end. So although it has all the gosh gee whiz that we love in science fiction space battles and all of that stuff it's a it's a human story it's it's about why we're alive and what it me- and, and self-sacrifice and all the things that we really care about and really make our lives worth living and so in space command these will be human stories these will be stories about these people going through this adventure so all the reasons we love star trek and all the all the science fiction stories that speak to us when you look back at, at science fiction what moves us? It's, it, the ideas are great, but ultimately it's the characters. If not for Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and, and even the Star Wars universe, you know, Luke and Leia and Han Solo, I mean, these are the characters that we take the journey with and, and, and that move us. So Space Command is very much going to be a hopeful vision and an exciting vision, but it's going to be a human vision uh, beyond anything else. And uh, so, so really working on the drama and, and the characters live and breathe um, is going to be what's going to deliver deliver it and, and make it work as a show. And it was really fun the other week when Ian, Ian came into town and we and he and I sat down with Catherine McEwen and we were talking about the role that she's playing and, and just getting into the heart and soul of that character. And, 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 and Ian designs characters from their their inner life and from who they are. And, 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 uh, and Ian can certainly talk about that too. But, uh, but it's, it's, just, it's just really fun to dig in and, and see who these people are. And, and Doug and I have been talking about some of the earlier characters in the, in, in the earlier stories that we're going to be doing too and, and, and what drives them. So it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's really working out great. Wonderful. Um, now, this question can be for anybody, and, and that's generally, uh, what do you all think about today's uh, approach to sci-fi, uh, the latest movies, Prometheus, for instance, or anything of that nature? Yeah. Can, can, I, can I jump in here with a, uh, I don't have a definitive opinion on this. I actually have come in quite late to Space Command, um, and um, so I, I have a very fresh impression of it, and I'm still still learning and exploring, but one of the things that did attract me to it is that it captured that same excitement that I had as a kid sitting watching the Apollo moon landing. Yes. You know, and, and then you just couldn't wait to run and raid the toilet rolls and chop them up and turn them into space command modules and, you know, <laughs> grab cardboard boxes and build a lunar module and stuff. And, and just, yeah. it, it was such a thrill to think we could actually get up there. I still walk out and look up at the moon and I go, oh my God, <laughs> we stomped around on that. Yeah. Good for us. Yeah. And and in sci- a lot of science fiction now, I noticed the genre got a real um, big boost when Alien came out. I was a huge <laughs> fan, still am a fan of the original Alien. Um, but it, it took science fiction and crossed it with, with horror. And the, mm-hmm. the mixed genre really gave it some teeth and um, made it edgy for people again today. Um, but it's... It, the horror always seemed to remain behind. It's almost like it infected most science fiction films mm-hmm. since Alien came out with, with a sense of horror. And after 
God, what is it, uh, 10, 20 years of that, I'm just so, I feel so beat up. <laughs> where's, where's my moon landing? Where's the, where's the, the fantastic excitement and joy of going into space? And so, you know, along comes Mark, and he always does this to me. I'm never, ever expecting, I'm usually too busy to work on his project. I'm never expecting to jump aboard and help. And then just brings these flavors that are just, just things that aren't being done anymore. And they're just wonderful um, and, and enticing and tapping right back to that childhood, you know, nurtured on moon landings and Ray Bradbury. And so um, Space Command was that for me. I suddenly saw ordinary people bringing their, their small problems into a giant arena out in outer space. And outer space dwarfed everything because it was just so amazing to be up there. Mm. So that's where I come from. <laughs> I think things like Prometheus are still my, trying to mine the, the horror of being in space. And, and I didn't, for my taste, I didn't see anything new there. Um, and so I actually didn't enjoy it, whereas I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan, and I, I love that first Alien, but I was actually quite angry at Prometheus. Okay. So, so what did you all think of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek Eleven? <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I thought that JJ uh, did a, did a pretty good job. He, I was on the set for some of the shooting, and 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 I talked with JJ before he undertook it. And um, you know, it's. I, I there were so many possible landmines to step on. It was such a you know such a project that could have just gone south in so many ways. And, mm. and uh, you know, there, it's not a perfect film, but I think it's a, a very very solid solid job. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think he came to it with a good heart and, uh, and with respect, and uh, and the idea of making it, you know, a different timeline so now they can move forward in and not be bound by you know canon uh, in in a way that would have been problematical otherwise. I think that was very clever, and uh, and the new cast brings a lot of energy to it, and uh, you know, so and 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 I I know some people are complaining about the bridge looking like a flying Apple store, and there is that, but you know. It's, uh, <laughs> You know, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll certainly be in line to see the next one. Absolutely. Yeah, same. It's hard playing with icons, you know, especially recasting, um, and it, it always takes a bit of a shift. I, I was one of the grumblers that, oh my God, that's not Spock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he doesn't kiss Uhura. What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> and honestly, by by the end of the two hours, I'd totally forgotten it. I'd gone along with JJ's new. You know, hypothesis of what was going on. Um, I still have huge problems with the story, but but it was so fun, it almost didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one one thing I'll mention one thing about that, Ian, which is pretty hilarious. Which is, you know, considering how powerful that that Romulan mining ship is, I don't know why the Romulans just don't, just don't send their mining ships out, you know, as part of battle fleet. I mean, it's like, good lord. <laughs> Kidding. Like I say, huge plot holes. But but you know, what, part of the fun of the original series for me was that the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy were just so fantastic to watch on screen together. You just wanted them to argue. I almost didn't care what the story was as long as they fought and then made up. Yes. And he yes. definitely caught that flavor. Yep. Good, good. And thank you for sharing, you know, what, what you know, the vision is of, of Space Command. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? You know, what, what the vision of the future is that we can expect from Space Command? Yes, yes. I mean, basically, you know... Uh, one thing I want to say is that although it's a, it's a hopeful vision and a positive vision, it's not Pollyanna. You know, there will be menaces, and there and we and obviously mankind will take its its uh, weaknesses out in space as well. So we will have we will have you know, you know, enemies, and we will have challenges, and we will have wars, and all of that. But the point is that you know, there, there, I think certain certain science fiction writers, particularly in TV and film, have almost a determined 
negativity and a determined uh, dark darkness, you know, that, that, is, that I think is sort of faddish. I mean, it's not, because in my life, compassion and love are, have, a, have a power to banish, um, you know, evil. <laughs> you know, I mean, terrible things can happen, but, but compassion is very powerful. Love is very powerful. These, are, you know, these aren't, you know, uh, I'm not, you know, illusions. These aren't, these aren't, you know, um, things to, to dismiss. And I think that, you know, as much as I like Battlestar Galactica, Ron Moore's version, it was a very dark version, and certainly Prometheus is very dark. So I think there's room for a, a storyline that says, okay, we're going to go out into space and, and encounter a lot of challenges, but still, there's going to be, um, there's, there's a reason to do it, and it's a hopeful reason, and it's a, and it's a good reason, and uh, I think there'll be a lot to cheer for in Space Command. Yeah, wonderful. So tell us about your plans for distribution. Uh, online only, DVD, theatrical, or a mix of all those? Uh, will it be a free download? Yeah. Um, no, it's it basically, uh, you know, we, we have a Kickstarter campaign going now, uh, you know, at spacecommandmovie.com, and it's been, go been going very, very well. And uh, the plan basically is that it'll be DVD, uh, Blu-ray. There will be a, an HD download for people who, you know, pledge at certain levels. And... Uh, and if someone comes along who wants to release it theatrically, we're open to that, but we're not requiring that. I'm basically running it all pretty much like, a, like I would a TV show um, because it's such a big story and such a big canvas. So all of the storylines will, will connect. And, uh, and, we'll, and our plan is to be in continual production. So we're already building sets and costumes and designing things. We're, at, we're in active reproduction now, even though our Kickstarter campaign has not ended. And as I said, I've, 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 I've written most of the first script. I've outlined the second and third movies. I know what the fourth one's going to be. We're working on the vignettes, and I'm outlining those as well, the half-hour stories. So, uh, so it's it, so we're you know just going to be a machine that just keeps going. And uh, you know, but definitely the the initial model is yeah DVD, VOD, uh, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was the plan from the from the get go. I mean, I'll, and I'll tell you basically why. <laughs> one of the reasons why uh, I come out of television, and uh, you know, and and I've been part of the Star Trek universe and part of the Babylon 5 universe and the Sliders universe. A lot of the shows I've worked on have been big stories, you know, with lots of characters and lots of things happening. And, and the, shows that, the shows that made me want to be a writer were the original Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, and Star Trek. And, uh, and I love the, the scope of TV series. I love the, the, the size of them, the, the elbow room. And, uh, and so recently I was thinking, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I recently worked on a, on a miniseries uh, dealing with Ray Bradbury's Mars stories. That was called Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars, and it was a miniseries, an eight-hour miniseries consisting of 20 of Ray Bradbury's Mars stories that, never, that, weren't, that aren't in the Martian Chronicles. And when, when Ray gave me the rights to, uh, to adapt those and to take them out, uh, I was amazed that the studios and networks weren't interested, that they didn't get it. And, mm. uh, and so then I started hearing about Kickstarter, and I thought, well, What's my goal in life? What have I been wanting? What have I wanted to do since I was thirteen years old? In my rise from from thirteen year old to executive producer on TV shows, and uh, and my whole goal has been to run my own hour, hour drama, my own science fiction show along the lines of Star Trek. And um, I thought, well, is there a way to take out the middleman? Is there a way to remove the studios and the networks? And what I, what I did with Star Trek: New Voyages, you know, the the, the world enough in time was yeah. sort of dry run to see how it would work, to see if I could actually create something that was at the level of a network show without requiring a network. And that worked out very well, and it was done for under $100,000. And I realized, you know, whereas an, that, if, I, if I'd done that show on a network, it would have been minimally $5 million, and it has 700 effect shots. So, so that, and the fact that I was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula showed me there was an audience. It was seen by millions of people, and it showed me that there was a hunger for this kind of material, and also it showed me that, uh, that we could do it at, at that kind of budget working independently. So when I became aware of Kickstarter, it was like, okay, I can do my own show via Kickstarter. And so although we're releasing them as 
um, movies and also as half-hour stories that will be linked to that, uh, it's basically much more structurally a, a TV show. But we're just doing it in this manner to, uh, to use the new, the new models and the new uh, funding methods. Now, you mentioned uh, the networks. Um, what do the networks use as deciding factors when, when guiding storylines? You know, in other words, why do they often go as you put it south? Uh, mainly, mainly what they're thinking about is where to have lunch. You know, that's the big one. And, you know, where, what, what, what res restaurants have the best food? No, I'm joking. The, uh, <laughs> uh, but it is certainly one of their concerns. Um, here's the thing. Here's the thing. about, And I don't, I don't you know, I, it's funny because in all the interviews I've been doing, all the videos for Space Command and all of that, I'm, I try very hard not to slam the networks and studios because I've done, I mean, all the movies that we're talking about, all the TV shows that we love, they were all developed within the studio and network hierarchy. So, so, so when it works... It can work amazingly well. I mean, Blade Runner is a jewel of yeah. a film, and that was done via a studio. So, so we have to be mindful that sometimes the studio network, the studio executives, and the network executives are are friends. You know, they have they can have great notes. They can be very much advocates for what we're doing. They can be our warriors in in, in you know and get things through and 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 wonderfully made. So, but but the part of the problem is that when you're on a show. You are at the mercy of whoever ends up being the executive overseeing your show. And if it's a show for a studio and a network nowadays, you might have 15 executives all giving you notes. And so, you know, so some network executives are great. I, I worked with Bonnie Hammer on, on several series, including Sliders, and she was terrific. But, but on the other hand, you know, if you get a network, I've also had studio and network executives. I've had network executives who were overseeing net science fiction shows say to my face years ago, um, I tried to watch Sliders and I just don't understand it. I, I tried to watch Babylon 5 and I just don't get it. And these are guys responsible for science fiction shows, giving notes. And, but those are guys you have to listen to. If they give you a note and it doesn't make sense, you still have to address it. You cannot duck it. And, um, and so often science fiction shows go south because it's not that the executives are deliberately trying to ruin these shows. They just are trying to do their best job, but they don't, they don't resonate to this kind of material. So, so that's part of the problem. Can I chip in something else there too, Mark? This yeah. is more f for film than for television shows, but um, with with the prices of films skyrocketing, and they really are mega mega budgets now. Even the yes. low budget ones are still mega budgets. I remember when Terry Gilliam's um, Baron Munchausen cost forty million dollars and nearly sank the studio. Yes. <laughs> now yeah. that wouldn't even register. No. But uh, you'll find that the studios are trying to mitigate their risk. Um, by making sure that there are things in there that they know will sell, and they only think they know that it will sell based on what's sold before. Yes. And if you're any kind of entertainer, you know that you can't get up on stage and do what you did before and expect them to laugh or clap or be excited. You know, you fly by the seat of your pants every single time. Mm -hmm. But it gives the, the illusion of some sort of um, uh, risk uh, mitigation. And, and so... It's great, actually, because it means the big budget films go along the safer lines, but the playing field is now cleared for the independent filmmakers to come in and, for very little money, do things that are stranger and edgier and a whole wealth of things that studios won't even touch, um, and they're all ours to play with. Yeah, and if I can also add to that, just as an actor, I mean, kind of breaking in, that I think one of the things also that, you know, audience gets sick of seeing the same people over and over and over again and one of the things that's also does mitigate the risk as you said Ian is that you know they will cast the same people yep. one of the great things about Space Command especially is that um, you guys are able to take the risk in bringing new faces and new talent and to an arena and you know giving us 
giving actors a break where we may not have had it in a in a TV show that you know just brings in the same established actors, and I think that's going to bring a real a real excitement to it. I yeah, think people and, uh, really want to see new faces. Too. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. That's a that's a very mm-hmm. amazing perspective, especially as an actor. Yes. I should also mention that David Raiklin has just joined us, our composer and, and co-producer, so, so David's here as well. Ah, thank Hi. you for joining us. Welcome, David. Hey, David. Hi, I'm David Raiklin, and I'm a composer. I work in film, TV, video games, and concerts. I kind of have uh, a very specific kind of scoring. I work with live musicians, large or small project. The Space Command universe, being inspired by the 1950s, is kind of an amazing cultural uh, alchemy where you have uh, Bernard Herrmann inventing the science fiction soundtrack with The Day the Earth Stood Still, and you have uh, the uh, first female film composer that, that I'm aware of in uh, Baby Baron on uh, Forbidden Planet soundtrack. Yeah, that's a great soundtrack. And uh, yet we also can draw on other influences from that era, like, uh, for instance, our, our characters might occasionally be listening to, to the classics, like uh, mm-hmm. Elvis, or, uh, <laughs> or, 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 or public domain music. <laughs> yes, yes, public domain. <laughs> they'll, they'll be listening at line, you know, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah, and, so, and one of the things that's really fun about this, I should mention, is that it's so much fun for me to reach out to my friends. I mean, you know, I think, I think you can tell that we're that we're, we're buddies. I mean, I've, I've known Ian for, for a couple of decades now, and Catherine, I'm just so blown away by her talent, and, and Doug Drexler is just genius, and, and David, David's been terrific, and, and, and so, you know, the part of fun, one, one, see, one of the things, it's, it's very funny, I ran into my friend uh, Mark Fergus the other day, and Mark writes movies like Iron Man, and, and Cowboys and Aliens, and Children of Men, really an A-list screenwriter, and we're, we're good friends, and we were talking about the difference between what I'm doing and what he's doing, because you know, I've I've worked in the studios, you know, in the studio, uh, um, you know, under the studio umbrella for many many years, and 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 yet the fun part about this, and I was talking to Brandon Braga about this yesterday at the gym, is I can bring aboard anyone I want to. I do not have to go to anybody for permission, and that's lovely. So if I want to bring Ian aboard, or Catherine McEwen, or Christina Moses, or David Raiklin, or Doug Drexler, or Neil Johnson, I just reach out and ask them if they want to play in my sandbox. And, uh, you know, and I don't have to listen to, uh, it's very funny, a friend of mine was, was directing a, a science fiction movie for an unnamed network, and, um, the, uh, and they, they said, well, uh, we're this wrestler we want you to have star in this. Well, okay, can that wrestler act? That's irrelevant, okay? And so he had to deal with that issue. Now, and he did deal with it because he's very adroit, but, um, but the point being, nobody is coming to me and saying, put a wrestler in this, you know? Right, right, <laughs> I was right. about to, I was about to ask <laughs> Wrestler brother, but no. Yeah, well, and, you know, but, but but the thing is, if it was a wrestler who could act, who right. would be, I'd, I'd certainly consider it. But but again, <laughs> I don't I don't have to say yes to the stupid choice. I don't have to say yes to anything that's going to um, make my, my own. The only challenges we have right now, really, beyond the creative challenges, are simply whatever the highest number that we reach in in Space Command, which is why it's great if people you know pledge as much as possible. Is the the that we will have the budgetary challenge of bringing something in for high quality at a low cost, and one has to be very um, inventive with that. But um, but I would I, but I welcome that challenge as opposed to the other challenges where you know you're cut off at the knees before you even start. Yeah, I think it's a lot. Yeah, more like, a it's a lot more like theater in that case. Yeah. You know, where they give you a budget of five dollars and you have to costume the history of the world, but you yeah. do it. Yeah. 
Okay. Yes. And yes. sometimes some of the greatest um, moments in film that we know have come from, you know, not ha- having a, a major challenge. Mm, you know, yes. Lost Highway, David Lynch had had major challenges financially and otherwise. And some of the best moments came out of that where he had to be inventive and, and find something else to do. And yeah, usually those happy accidents are what we most remember. Yeah, it's I true. think so too. And I think yeah. a, a good thing is that it, you can't solve it with a special effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have the money to do that effect. You actually have to write a good story. Yeah, well, uh, that's uh, that's what uh, uh, th- uh, that's good to know, Ian. I'll I'll, I'll take that to heart. So. <laughs> that's what you've done. That's what you've done. You have. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And but you know, but also it's it's funny because when I was writing the Twilight Zone companion and talking to a lot of the people who worked on on that show and a lot of the writers in the fifties, originally when when television first emerged in the late forties and early fifties, a lot of the writers thought that television would sort of be a Broadway stage for the entire country, and and they were so disappointed when censorship moved in and sponsors moved in with all of their notes and it became I mean as much as I love shows like Petticoat Junction and, and Green Acres and I Dream of Jeannie and, and Beverly Hillbillies and all the shows I grew up on you know they're a far cry from what Rod Serling intended and, what, and the reason he created Twilight Zone was so he could avoid censorship and he succeeded but of course now if he were doing, doing what he wanted to do he'd be on Kickstarter you know obviously absolutely yeah mm-hmm. hey just to follow up on something uh, this is David again uh, uh, <laughs> Sorry, that's that's that was David and the dog. So <laughs> I'm David, and and, yeah. and the dog speaks uh, canine. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> the genre of science fiction has created a lot of the uh, iconic techniques that are used in many other kinds uh, of movies, mm. and they didn't necessarily have a big budget, but they needed to do something that was cool and far out, and then that's other true. filmmakers began to take that up. For instance, uh, using sound design, using uh, strange, unusual sounds to create a sense of another world was invented in Forbidden Planet. But now uh, we have every movie that has sound design in it because it's just a great storytelling technique to create a unique sound for a unique place. So it could be that within our budgetary restrictions and because of the gigantic century-spanning story arc, we're going to have to invent some new ways to tell the story just because we have to. And I think that that actually doesn't really depend on technology. It depends on creativity and imagination. And if you're trying to get people to do something uh, that's uh, the same or similar to what's been done before, you just can't get that kind of, uh, of creativity. I mean, Ian is getting to design a character that we've never seen before because the story requires it. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, it's, it's, it, these are the same challenges that you encounter all up and down the budgetary range. I, I'm currently doing a book with Guillermo del Toro, and so I, I get to watch how his operation works at the $200 million range. And, uh, and it's a lot of the s- similar problems. It's, you, they, you know, no matter how much money they give, you know, the, somebody, there's, there's always going to be a shot you're not going to be able to afford, you know, one way or another. There's always going to be something you don't get to do. And uh, and so, you know, but the new bag of tricks, I wouldn't be undertaking this if we were still shooting, you know, 35 millimeter and editing on a moviola. I mean, the fact that hey, we can... It didn't stop Ed Wood? No, it didn't, my God. But And look at what he created. But, uh, but mm-hmm. thanks thanks to digital cameras and Final Cut on a, on a Mac and, and the Internet and all of these wonderful tools we have now, this makes it all possible. And, and I'm very grateful. Yeah, you know, the uh, the original Kickstarter goal was uh, $75,000, and you've since doubled that. Um, yeah. how, how does this doubling affect production? Like, what can you do now that you hadn't thought possible on the original budget? 
Yeah. Uh, well, we'll be able to feed the actors for one thing. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Think about lunch this time, right? This time yeah. you can think about uh, lunch. Exactly. The um, well, you know, it's, it, it, I'm very gratified because I, I never raised money before in, in my career. Uh, the network's always, you know, ponied up the the the, the cash, and uh, in this case, I didn't know if it would work. And so I'm very grateful that, to the Kickstarter community and to our backers. Uh, we planned on raising seventy five thousand dollars in two months, and we raised it in just over three days. And now we're up to over one hundred and sixty three or four thousand dollars, and we still have several weeks ahead. Head, including the panel and the signings we're going to be doing at Comic Con, and so I think we're going to, you know, get some, you know, fairly far beyond the, beyond where we are now. And and what the what the added money actually brings us is, you know, we can there are hard costs, construction costs, uh, costumes, building things. There's there's the, with with special effects you have to have compositors. There's really nuts and bolts things that if you have more money, it really helps you do it do the job better and 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 more quickly. And so the, all of those things will be very, very helpful to us. And, and I'm, you know, so, so my goal is to get as high a number as we possibly can because this will allow us to finish these films uh, better, quicker, you know, to get them to our, to our backers uh, you know, as soon as we possibly can. Mark, will it also translate into more stories or will you put it into the stories you have already? Well, what we've done now is we've said that if we hit the three hundred thousand dollar mark, the, 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 our backers will get the um, the first film and the first half hour, uh, what we're calling vignette that the mm -hmm. Doug and I are working on. And if we hit five hundred thousand, they'll get the first two movies. And so, mm -hmm. so, so, the, so the amount actually will affect the amount of of stories that people get off the bat. But again, because we're going to be in continual production, we're going to be making a number of these. Uh, we'll just be on, you know, ongoingly finding ways to to afford to make them and. Uh, but uh, but it's it's great that people around the world are, are are you know reaching into their piggy banks and helping us. I'm I'm, I'm grateful if someone gives us one dollar or if they give us ten thousand. And people have been giving us ten thousand dollars at a, at a crack. So that's that's really great. Now, did yeah. did you anticipate such a response and so much support? I I was I was totally um, I, I had no idea how it would go. I'm I, but I but I but I do know this, and th I think this is something that served me greatly in my career, which is that I'm really the same kind of person as the audience. So I don't, I, if I write what, what I love, if I write what in, in entertains me and moves me, it'll resonate with an audience because I grew up with Star Trek and Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and those were the shows that shaped me as a writer. And Ray Bradbury's work, of course. I mean, my dear friend Ray Bradbury. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm very, I'm very gratified. I'm very grateful. Um, but we would have made this 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 film regardless. I mean, Neil and Neil Johnson and I had 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 those conversations before launching the campaign. So we we had a, a, a fallback plan if 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 Kickstarter hadn't worked. But to take it a step further, there are probably many many fans who would love to see this show that haven't heard about it yet. Yes, and that's sort of our mission uh, between now and when the the film appears in two. 2013, they're the first installment, is yeah. that we want everyone who's a science fiction fan to know that we're making a show for you, and it's not going to get canceled. We're going to keep making right. it as long as you want it. Yeah, right. yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, you know, if, if Gene Roddenberry had been, you know, if Kickstarter had been available to Gene Roddenberry, instead of having a write-in campaign, with the original Star Trek, you, you guys, I'm sure, know this story, which was... Uh, they were going to cancel it after the second season. There was a writing campaign that got the third season, but NBC put it in a terrible time slot on Friday nights, and Roddenberry said, uh, unless you change the time slot, I'm going to leave. I'm walking. And they called his bluff, and he left. And that's why the third season didn't have the, the strong, the, as strong a storyline and, and, and creative uh, you know, uh, angle of attack 
as the first two seasons because Roddenberry left. Well, nowadays, if that had been the case, he could have gone on Kickstarter, could have raised his budget. He wouldn't have had to leave. And also, you, of course, wouldn't have a time slot because people on the Internet are watching shows uh, whenever they want, you know. And uh, so it's so then I think the new model is a much healthier one than the old one. I mean, back when Roddenberry and, and Sterling were doing their shows, uh, you know, there were only three networks. If you pissed off three guys who headed those networks, you were out of a career. And uh, the lovely part about the Internet and Kickstarter and all these new tools is no studio or network can stop us. And that's a wonderful feeling of freedom. Fantastic, fantastic. Yes. Uh, well, now that we have uh, David Raikland with us, um, it's refreshing to see the blogs on your site dedicated to the music of sci-fi. Uh, can you talk to us about the, sure. more about the music of Space Command? You, met, you were talking uh, a bit about it earlier. Uh, where are you drawing inspiration? Uh, you know, what sounds or, or themes are you experimenting with? Maybe yes, yes, exactly. Uh, it, it, it's going to be Esquivel wall to wall. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But we do want to uh, show respect for the, the, the period and use uh, sounds like a symphony orchestra and like early synthesizers where they have a, a certain vibe. Uh, for instance, that uh, warbling sound that you've all heard, we've all heard, called the theremin. As soon as mm -hmm. you hear that sound, I don't care uh, if you were uh, raised in, in the Australian outback. You know that that's 50s science fiction. Mm -hmm. So right. we want to use some of that sound because it's truly iconic. It instantly evokes an entire universe. But at the same time, our show was set in the far future, and you can't set uh, you can't you know have a period piece set in the future. We right. have to create the future. So we're going to invent our own sonic vocabulary and uh, like uh, Jerry Goldsmith or Bear McCrary, mm -hmm. we're going uh, have a soundscape. Uh, a show that was wonderful uh, for this is uh, both the classic and the next generation Star Trek have yeah. sounds that are playing uh, again and again in every episode that define that universe in an unconscious level but as soon as you hear it you know you're in that world and even when JJ uh, was doing uh, the most current uh, Star Trek he used the same sound effects didn't even recreate them just used exactly the same sounds because he knew that those were iconic so uh, we're going to draw on new sounds that create the world of the Space Command clipper ship and the base and the uh, Empire, I don't want to give away too much, but right. uh, each of these uh, will have uh, their own theme. Mm -hmm. That's something that was very characteristic of uh, film music from the very beginning, from uh, the so-called silent days. They would have live orchestras play all the way up until about the last 10 years when all these wonderful sound design tools became available, and those are very easy for producers and directors to understand. You push the button, you get a sound. Mm. With music, it's a little bit more subtle than that. It requires a, a kind of a, a talent to write a melody. But, you know, people don't fall in love to a, a whoosh. They fall in love to a melody. So that's something that we're going to hopefully have plenty of, but the final decision is our supreme commander, Mark Zickery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I think one thing that David is pointing out that's really accurate is, in our design aesthetic, there's a nod toward the wonderful science fiction designs of the 50s, the book covers, the, the, the great films and TV shows, but we're not slavish to that. 
And just like JJ, you know, was was paying homage to some of the design elements of the original Star Trek with with the uniforms and so forth in his movie, but it didn't feel musty. You know, that's the main thing. The main thing is yes. is having a suspension of disbelief where people can just sign on to these people and this world and go for that ride. And I think that's our prime. Um, I almost had our prime directive. Uh, <laughs> that's our prime prime objective. And. Uh, uh, and so far, so good. I mean, every day I wake up and, and I'm greeted with wonderful things that my team are creating. Yeah, I think design design wise, the uh, recent Captain America movie did that right. They were doing a World War II film, but it didn't feel like an old World War II film. It felt very um, edgy and contemporary, and yet those still were the designs from that century. So a lot of care was taken by that art department going back into anything from the flying wing to a helmet, and and trying to take the same um, design principle that they would have used in the 50s and then reimagine it for the for the future or for today. Yes, mm -hmm. Alan Silvestri did exactly that same uh, approach with the score where uh, the, the leading elements were things that people in the 1950s could have recognized, but there was all these other contemporary electronic effects mm -hmm. that made it feel modern and contemporary. And, and of course, the trick is how do you balance the two? How do you have enough of the old and enough of the new so that both are well served? And, and that's why we have some of the greatest artists in the history of Hollywood. I'm not including myself in that working on this product. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and, and part and part of you know part of assembling the team is really recognizing talent. And I I'm, I, I refer to myself as a Venus flytrap. I mean, I just catch these people and they don't get they don't go anywhere. You know, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> So David, um, aside from from music, you're developing uh, unique uh, sound effects as well. Yes, I'm uh, contributing to the sound design. Although we're also going to have a separate sound design department because that, that deserves uh, full time attention also. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I was wondering if you had a chance to uh, to follow in the tradition of um, various sound editors and and sound designers of uh, sci fi productions who have created their own unique sounds, if you've gotten a chance to do that yet, the, your own unique effect or a background uh, soundtrack? Uh, yes, we're working on that. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to you know, put the microphone up close to the On the Fritz TV set to get the laser blaster sound like they did in Star Wars. And <laughs> uh, we're going to uh, go to the, uh, the uh, kitchen and open the oven so we can get the creaking sound like they did in Prometheus. <laughs> nice. All sounds you know, taken out of context and yes. with a very little processing suddenly transform you to an alien world. And, and you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a painter putting in a spot of red. And, you know, we've all seen red, but when you put that red in the right place at the right time, it suddenly has a new meaning. So, yeah. yes, that's what uh, collecting these unique sounds is for. They might be things that you've all heard, so they're familiar, but by putting it in an unfamiliar context, it suddenly becomes sci-fi. Mm -hmm. You know, cool. I just realized that's the same, same principle that we use in designing things, that um, they're brand new, you've never seen them before, and yet, somehow it's familiar. And it really is to take something that that's been around forever, something as obvious as a shoe, or mm -hmm. in, in the case of Boba Fett's ship from Empire Strikes Back, a lamppost. That's, mm. the, that's the top part of a lamp, and if you tear it off and turn it upside down, you've got a ship. Wow. So if you take things that people hear, see, just they know it, and then give a little twist so it looks a little unusual, um, it makes icons with a history built into them. 
And I think mm. squeak mm. from the fridge door is doing that. We've all heard it, but you put that squeak next to an alien coming down a hallway, uh, tearing towards a hallway with you with a horde of them behind him, and that squeak suddenly becomes sinister and familiar at the same time and different. Well, sounds yeah. good to me. Exactly. Speaking of effects, um, is it challenging to create a future that's inspired by older visions of you know the early uh, American sci-fi? Are you, are you designing with the goal to recreate the vision of early science fiction imagery? Um, uh, you know, you, again, you've touched on this a little bit before. I'm hoping to get a little more. It's more a case of going back to the same um, principles that they were thinking about when they designed those things in the 1950s. Okay. You know, they didn't know about certain kinds of technology and they were solving it with what they had. Um, so whatever their questions were that they answered, I want those questions. And then I'll mm -hmm. go back and I'll answer them my way today. But cool. you start from the same basis and that tends to create things along the same evolutionary line as opposed to coming from completely off base. If you want off base, then start, use that for your aliens. So it really does feel like something you haven't seen before. Yeah, and, and, and one thing I want to jump in with on this is, uh, for, fortunately, my, my degree is in painting, painting, sculpture, and graphic arts. I was a visual artist before I was a writer. I was having gallery shows when I was a teenager. And, uh, and, and so I love working with visual artists. I, I, have a, I have a vocabulary where it's very easy for me to communicate with them. And Ian and I work together very, very well. And Doug and I have been collaborating well. As, in, 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 additionally, and Andy Probert is also aboard our design team now, and he's very, very talented. And... Uh, and so for me, the trick, and this is what I try to do with all of my departments, is you sort of rule with a light hand as much as possible, and you don't, you don't um, over-direct things. You don't micromanage things. You say, okay, just show me something that I'm going to love, you know? It's like, you know, and then Ian comes up with something, or, or, or David, or, or Doug, or Andy Probert, and it's like, wow, that's cool. And then it just becomes the issue of, okay, does this fit within... You know, does it all mesh? Does it all you know work together? Or, or there might be a practical thing where it's like, okay, um, th this is how many characters we need on this set, and so we have to make an adjustment as just so it, you know, so that there's an so it fits. But, 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 and, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's just like when I when I write a character, I don't say, oh, this character has blonde hair because someone may come in who has red hair and they might be spectacular. So you don't you don't limit your vision to a degree that a better idea can't can't come in through the door. Yeah. You, do, you do need some sort of through line so that it doesn't end up as a mishmash because obviously everybody comes from different directions. You bet. I remember you on, bet. on Star Wars, we were supposed to create an earlier universe and our through line for that was that it was more like going back 100, 200 years in our time um, yes. to when things were more handmade and yeah. as a result a lot more ornate and less uniform. Yeah. Um, and, and in addition to that, we gave it a... Um, sort of art movement, we made it Space Nouveau. Which, mm -hmm. If you remember, Art Nouveau is based on plant forms and organic shapes. So uh, a lot of the shapes that we would pull in for the ships or for the costumes or whatever would be because Doug Chang and I would go out in Skywalker Ranch and lie on our tummies and draw grass and plants and, you know, haul bits of woodland things into the studio and sketch from those. Sure. Um, and that, that, that brings the universe together. That binds it into one kind of history rather than a bunch of artists trying to be cool. That's great. Yes, I'm going to take that a step further. By the way, that was a revelation, and thank you. Thank you, <laughs> One of the uh, important steps is building a, a vocabulary, or, or if you prefer, an, an artist's arsenal 
in, in music and sound design, we create a whole set of sounds that might or might not fit in this universe. And it's, it's sort of like uh, we might go to uh, someone's house or uh, a museum or a junkyard and just record the, the sounds that we can get out of objects that are in the 1950s. And from that, we'll have a palette that we can start to incorporate into the show based on what the storyline is and, and where they fit. So we're still kind of in that, that stage now because the movie isn't done. We're still inventing our tools. So th that's going to be half of the fun is yep. finding what fits in the Space Command universe. Mm -hmm. I also want to add when you're creating made-up stuff, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or whatever, you want to try and, and coat it or embed it with as much history as possible, um, which is why we do all of our, our research uh, on the costumes going back and looking at you know three different periods of history or three different places around the world and finding three different solutions for putting yes. a belt on. And, and suddenly using that design from Mongolia married with ancient Egypt, married with Elizabethan England creates a, a sense of history you didn't have to invent. It's there in that costume. It's, it, you tie it that way because of thousands of years of people learning that that was the most efficient way to be mobile and still have a belt. Um, mm -hmm. And I just I noticed that when we were working on your um, your character, Catherine, mm. um, we were doing the same thing, but but with you as an actress, we were right. talking about the history of your character. Right. Just a case of coming up with a cool costume for you. It was, why would she, what would she have that tells us that she's holding on to something? Or um, that was a very inspiring to uh, work with you on that that day. And just listening to all of you talking, it just really uh, emphasizes for me as an actor the importance of. And I'm really looking forward to this part, Mark, is where we all get together as actors and make sure that we, we first of all, are on, all on the same page together as. Yeah human beings living in this shared universe with a shared history to a point, at least the human, human ones, and then fitting into the world that you guys are creating um, yeah. smoothly so that we are all part of something and we're not, you know, renegade and, right. and, and just focus on doing our own thing, but we're all part of, part yeah. of this and we bring a sense of humanity and going back to, you know, previous conversations about what you were saying about having like familiarity and, in uh, even in the future, one of the great challenges, uh, you know, for an actor doing this kind of project is that we're in absolutely fantastical circumstances, and yet the audience are going to relate to the humanity in us, and so we really have a responsibility to, you know, bring our humanity and bring all of the little nuances that we all go through on a day-to-day. Um, you know, level, but in yes. this in crazy, fantastical world, that's going to be really exciting. I'm excited. I think that's what made the Avengers work so well, is they had so many of those little ordinary details. The fact that they can save the world, and at the very end, where they are in the cafe eating whatever it was—I forget the name of it—and uh, they're just too tired to talk. Yeah. <laughs> And but that's but that's also you know the thing of it is is you go into I mean from for me as a writer you know you go into the human heart of these characters and whether it's your character Catherine and, and her backstory or you know Doug Jones is going to be playing the android you know Dor Nevin and uh, and Ian's designing that now and um, 
And, it, and it, exactly, just think about, okay, who are these people? What do they care about? Where are they coming from? What's their background? Where are they heading? I mean, what are they, what's ahead of them down the road? And, 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 you, and it's always about the human story. And, it's, and one of the challenges, of course, is we're building, you know, with this whole design team, we're building this enormous, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's spaceships and all these things, but I have to keep my eye on the ball. And, and whereas I have to have input on that and be very enthusiastic about all of those great, you know, all the great uh, uh, gizmos and, and machines and all of that stuff, I have to really keep an eye on what's the human story and who are these people and why do we care about them and and what and why do they care about each other? And because if I lose sight of the moment I lose sight of that, then it just becomes stuff blowing up on the screen and it's and it's not interesting. Right, and that was what was so great, Ian, when we were discussing mm-hmm. our our costume was that that humanity. You know, you never lost sight of that from the minute we started talking about it till you know you left. Was that that was the main through line? And I feel like that's going to really help that we. You know, we're going to be wearing things that have so much to do with who we are and, you know, as opposed to just putting on on fancy dress, you know. Catherine, Mm -hmm. ultimately, we should be able to do this with sock puppets. (laughs) (laughs) It's your performance that's going to hold it and it's the story of the character. What everything else is just kind of um, Christmas wrapping. So now on the the line of costumes and effects and art... um, Ian, how are you working in conjunction with the artist uh, Andy Probert and Steve Neal, who's building off of sketches? Can you give us a rundown of each role and how you yeah. play together? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's more like a band, so so it's not defined areas. Sometimes the band plays together, and other times s- s- groups of us fall back and let the other solo and so on. Um, there's been a wealth of material developed already, and a lot of it, in fact, I would say all of it is for uh, the the technical and environment side of things. So I'll come in and start to play off of that. And I'll say, okay, if, what do I know about our technology levels from this? Um, what do I know about what what people hope and dream from this? You know, as I say to, to everybody, take a look around right now what you're wearing and what other people are wearing. We're all responding to the same weather and nobody's dressed the same. Mm-hmm. And so a big That's part funny. of it, yes, you are responding to the temperature, but you're also shouting out to the world, how you want the world to see you. Mm. So I'm going to take, as an archaeologist, I'm going to take what exists right now and try and do my archaeological study and figure out what it's saying about the people. And from that, I'll, I'll use that as the beginning of my through line through the characters and the costumes and try and weave all of that together. And then, obviously, that's the time to pull in the others and say, okay, this is what I found. This is the through line I've been using. What do you think? And that's when the band starts to play. Yes. No, that reminds me very, very much in uh, a sort of uh, fast forward in time to what music does at the end of uh, the production, Mm -hmm. post-production process, where we're seeking a through line that carries the audience from the first scene to the last and all the roller coaster up and downs in a way that is coherent. And Ian gets to start at the beginning, and to some extent I do, but at the, at the end, what counts is that you need to have things that bind the audience to the character consistently for two hours, and if there's another episode, for another two hours, and, and so on. And, and that's where having simple themes that the audience can learn in a few seconds and remember when it occurs uh, a few minutes or or even a half hour later that, oh, okay, we've been here before and that part of the movie is now connected 
the, the part that we're in right now. So it feels like a unified whole. Mm -hmm. I hope that didn't come off as, as too theoretic because it's actually very practical. It just means no. that it, it, you yeah. have to do things yeah. that, uh, that trigger people's emotions in a, in a way that you can do over and over again so that Odara has a theme. And every time mm -hmm. we see her, we know what Odara is about even though we've just had, you know, this breathtaking action sequence that's had us on the edge of our seat and we've forgotten a little bit about Odara, but now we can remind you of who she's at in seconds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and add to that, we, it, she also grows. She's not a static character. So the nice thing about themes is that they, they are affected by the other themes that they bump into uh, and, and yes. become something different. By the end of the series, Odara's theme will have something recognizable still to it, but it'll be changed. Right, mm -hmm. yeah, and and also the exactly. fun and the fun part of the the, so true. the fun the fun, fun fun thing is also that we're doing a series of stories and they grow and they change and so for instance in the two hour uh, script I'm writing now that I'm I'm almost done with the uh, you know she's a, she's definitely a central character but the fourth one is going to be a huge story for her the fourth film and uh, and and we haven't really talked about the fact that her character wears an exoskeleton uh, because of a traumatic incident that happened to her uh, previously and so if it, it without the exoskeleton she dies within a matter of hours and and it's also an exoskeleton that has a a, um, a computer link because part of her mind was destroyed also and uh, and and this is you know and so so she's going to be a really an amazing looking character and she'll be a fascinating character just from an emotional standpoint but but also we we know where she's going one thing i want to mention about this is that because i i wrote for i'm i'm, I'm the only writer who wrote for both deep space nine and babylon five and and uh one thing i really liked about babylon five was there was a plan and the, and the, that it did that it actually went somewhere and it knew where it was going and all of that and so i'm laying out a big 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 canvas and a big story but i know a lot of those twists and turns and uh and i with all of the characters that i'm going to be introducing you want you want them to have their moment their something that's really important to them happening and so that's what i'm designing with all of these characters they have their emotional wounds and they also have their journeys and they also have destinations they're hoping to reach and mm -hmm. whether or not they get there will the story will tell mm -hmm. and we care because all of these characters are really parts of us yeah sure uh, yeah. So you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what type of art and artist influences are coming into play with regards to um, character appearance, ships, sets, yeah. costumes, um, all of that? Well, I, well, I'd say I'd say lots of Thomas Kincaid. No. Can I just to to talk about influences yeah. and, and heroes and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, we had that on Star Wars too, uh, where. You know, we were asked how much Ralph McQuarrie is in here and how much Joe Johnson and so on. Um, the the answer is lots and none, because you're obviously affected and influenced by what's come before, but you don't pay attention to that when you're designing. The only thing you're serving is the story, and so so I take a deep breath, look at everything, and then try to forget it and concentrate on Mark's storyline and how to serve that best with what I'm drawing, you know, how to weave in little sub visual subtitles so people will get things right away. Um, so I don't really, when I draw, I, I banish all other art and artists from my studio, and I work from um, real things. I work from live-action reference or, or models or um, real fabric, you know, um, I will never, ever have a process drawing, meaning someone else has drawn it uh, in front of me while I'm working. I try to go back to the real thing because then you're always you're always going back to the source, pulling it, pulling it in yourself and channeling it through you. 
And since everybody's unique, what comes out is unique, you know? Even if it's building a 1950s-style spaceship, I just go back to the same theories of that, ignore what's being done, answer it my way, and out comes a 1950s spaceship that you've never seen before. Yeah. Sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? But it, <laughs> you, you truly do have to take it in and then ignore it and answer the questions based on the source material, not on derived uh, answers. Yes, that's great. Yeah, do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, I have a question for you. How does the actor prepare for sci-fi? You know, it, it's not the conventional stage role. It's not necessarily a conventional film role. Um, what do you do? What do you do to, I, I presume it's going to be green screen mostly? Uh, Mark? Is yeah, it? it's, it's going to be a mixture of, of, of actual sets constructed and green screen. There'll be, there'll be set extensions. In some cases, there might be more minimal um, sets and props and, and more, more CG. It depends on a lot of variables that we're just um, starting to lay down. And, and these are conversations, you know, between our, our production team. As it, basically, once we have the script, you know, in hand and we, really, and we see how much money we get from Kickstarter, we'll, we'll really start to dig in on all of those things. But uh, it will be a mixture of green screen and practical sets. Sure. I was impressed by how much practical um, you actually had there, and it was fun yeah. to work on it, you know. It's cool. Green screen's pretty challenging, but it, I, I worked with green screen somewhat with, on Alien Armageddon, but to be honest, it's not that much different than doing theatre where you, you know, often if you're doing black box theatre, right, there's, there's absolutely right. nothing around, mm -hmm. and you really have to use your imagination. And um, obviously sensory, like sensory imagination is going to be really important so that you bring a real sense of life and um, as for other preparation, I mean, we were talking before that this is, you know, once, once as an actor you're able to connect to the humanity of the story and, and what she really wants. I don't want to give any spoilers out, but she wants basically the same thing as most of us want in our life. And then, you know, obviously watching a lot of sci-fi as well is very important and really becoming familiar with the genre and, and understanding you know, what kind of legacy this project is a part of and, and what kind of a world that they live in. And, yeah, that's, that's basically, I've got my work cut out for me. The next, <laughs> but the next, you do prepare, makes prepare it very more. Fun. You prepare What's more that? like a theatre actor than, right. than a film actor for this. And well, it's oh. No, I, I wouldn't say I, I do that. I'm just uh, making the correlation between green screen and theatre. I mean, I think acting's acting, and I think... The, the very first thing you want to do is just to understand who is this character, what does she want, what's she willing to do to get what she wants, what's in her way, and then how she feels about everyone else in her world. And then, you know, as I said, watching sci-fi helps you to, you know, you can't come into a sci-fi project and, and, and act like you're in Downton Abbey. You know, uh -huh. you have to kind of really understand the world that you're living in. And obviously there's a lot of language in the script and in, in sci-fi that you have to become familiar with because it'd be like doing a procedural. You have to make that language just roll off your tongue and that you understand what you're saying when you're talking about things that, you know, like time travel or other stuff. And also I think um, understanding that it's very military, you know, that they're on a ship and they're, it, it's a military uh, setting and the way that they talk, talk and address and have ranks is, you yes. know, an understanding of that is also going to be really important. Yeah. It's fascinating how many, at least in Star Trek, how many of the key stars and uh, had a strong theater background. I mean, you know, Kate Mulgrew is one of the first that come to mind. Of course, Patrick Stewart um, and the imagination that they have. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, well, well, actually, and science fiction. I've written both science fiction extensively and westerns too. 
uh, when I was a producer on The Lazarus Man. And it's a slightly bigger acting style, a slightly, you know, it, it's it's not like mainstream drama. There is there is a, there are adjustments to be made. And that's why, and particularly if you have actors in, in heavy prosthetic makeup, you you need sort of a big operatic style. The uh, uh, Andreas Katsalas, who played Jakar in Babylon 5, was a great example of that, my God, because he had to act under that full-face prosthetic, but he was brilliant. And so... But again, they have to find a way to get to the to the heart of the character. They have to project a human heart. And and it's funny because if, whether you're writing an alien or an android or you know or or a genetically altered human or whatever, ultimately it's a human story and a human character, regardless. I mean, Quark, any of those characters, they're really uh, variants of human beings, human human characteristics. You know, so so that's why you know we're always uh, presenting our world through that lens. Well. I think it's time to wrap up, unfortunately. It's been a phenomenal hour. I can't, I can't say enough. We'd like to take this time to open it up to all of you, you know, to talk to us more about Space Command. Where can people go? Where can people uh, chip in and Kickstarter? Well, and tell us about who's starring in the project, that too. That, too. Yes, 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 yes. That's, I'm glad you, you, you mentioned that. Uh, Armin Shimmerman, will be, we, uh, who played Quark in Deep Space Nine, is aboard. Uh, Ethan Phillips, who played Neelix in, in, Vo- in Voyager, is aboard. Doug Jones, who played Pan in Pan's Labyrinth and, and Abe Sapien in Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Amber Benson uh, wants to play a role, so we're finding a role for her. Rachel Luttrell from Stargate Atlantis. Bill Mumy from Lost in Space and Babylon 5. There's just tons of genre actors we all love. And Christina Moses, who played... Uh, Sulu's daughter in World Enough in Time. She's a spectacular actress, yeah. and uh, so there's a lot of genre favorites. And I'm and and I'm going to Comic Con. You know, we have a big panel at Comic Con, so I'm sure I'll be running into even more wonderful genre actors. And and I'm, you know I I love working with these guys. So I'm sure day by day we'll be adding more to our cast in terms of those those wonderful actors that we all that we all love. And uh, and George Nuri, who who I who uh, is the host of Coast to Coast, will actually be playing a role too, which is going to be great fun. And uh, and in terms of where people can find Space Command. Uh, if you go to spacecommandmovie.com, that'll take you right to the Kickstarter page, and there's a link that leads from there right to our website. So, and we have a Facebook page and Twitter and the whole nine yards. So, so Space Command is uh, is everywhere, and uh, and we're glad to have uh, people helping us in every way they can. <laughs> I we certainly look forward to it. All, I'm sure all of our our listeners are, and they're going to thoroughly enjoy this. Thank awesome. you. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Our pleasure. Well, thank you again. Any la- last final farewells? Everyone want to say goodbye at the same time? Uh, keep on. <laughs> All right. See you one, next Transfer complete.